Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. This morning marks the start again of the Advent season, and so we also embark on an Advent series called O Family Christmas Tree. Maybe you can hear the play on words there, but this morning we will be in Matthew chapter 1, the first six verses. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We don't make it the Word of God. It doesn't become the Word of God to us as we read it. It is the Word of God. And as the Word of God, it has authority in our lives for what we believe and for how we are to live our lives in obedience to it. It has authority. It has purpose. It is the most precious thing to us in all of the world because the Bible gives us God. It reveals to us God in a unique way, while creation might reveal to us some things about God, the Bible reveals to us a God who is a God of glory, a God of grace, a God of mercy, and a God of love. We always do well to listen to the Bible. It will never fail you. It will never lead you astray. In fact, as the Word of God, wherever we are, it will give you exactly what you need. And I believe that these first six verses in Matthew will give you and I exactly what we need today. So would you stand with me as I read Matthew 1, 1 through 6a. I will just read through the first half of that verse 6. We stand out of reverence and respect for God's holy word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the grace, peace, and mercy of the Almighty God be granted at all times to us miserable sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past few years, there has been a renewed interest in many people to find out more about their family history. All over the internet, sites like MyHeritage, Ancestry.com, Find My Past, Legacy Tree, or Genes Reunited, that's Genes with a G, Offer services so people can discover the intricacies of their family tree. I even saw on the internet a Black Friday deal for a DNA kit that you could purchase to find out more about your family history. These DNA services help people find out about the various ethnicities which comprise their DNA. Why is there this renewed interest? Why is there a willingness on the part of consumers to make the collection of genealogy databases big business? These are companies that make money off the industry of telling people more about their family line, their past, the ins and outs and the twists and turns of various people throughout their history. I think there is a willingness of people to dive into sites like these, not particularly because they are interested so much in their ancestors as they are interested in themselves. For them, looking at their family tree and finding out what ethnicities make up their DNA is more about self-discovery than about learning the history of their past. People have lost a sense of identity, a sense of who they are. And with a loss of identity comes a loss of purpose. If you don't know who you are, why are you doing what you are doing? Is there any purpose to it? Will you make any difference in this world? In people's past, they think 
there's just something that they can find, that they can hold on to, something that maybe will give an explanation as to why they are the way that they are, something that might tell them that they matter as a person. It is then they think they will find renewed purpose in life, a reason to live. We as Christians should not be those who are gaining a renewed interest in genealogies. Rather, we should be those who have known the importance of genealogies all along. Why do we know that genealogies are important? Because the Bible is full of genealogies. The Bible is not an endless book that just rambles on and on. It has a beginning and an end. It has a set amount of words that are God-breathed as the writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And too many might think, why would God waste precious space of his word with genealogies? Doesn't he have better things to say? More important things, more exciting things to say, more relevant things to say. I dare say that the reason so many want to find out about their family tree is because it is their family tree. They are a part of it. Their name is hanging on a branch, as it were. So when your name is on the list, you read it with greater interest, with greater anticipation, with greater care. I fear many Christians section off large portions of scripture and label them as boring because they are genealogies. Let's just skip that part. It's just a whole bunch of names that I can't pronounce. It's so repetitive I have a hard time staying awake when I read it. The reason why even Christians label genealogies as boring are because they fail to see that they are their genealogies. These genealogies are their family members. These genealogies are about them. These genealogies are about you and about me. When you begin with this understanding, you begin to read them in a different light. You will search and study and meditate and carefully examine who they are and what they did because their story is your story. If you wanted to write a book, I doubt that anyone would start with a genealogy. It doesn't exactly grab people's attention. What about the very beginning of the New Testament? How would you start? We have just gotten out of the Old Testament. That place where we've left all those long lists of genealogies behind, right? I mean, who wants to read the book of Numbers? After 400 years of silence... We are waiting with bated breath to hear what the Lord would say to his people. And he begins with a genealogy. 
To us, it appears anticlimactic. Maybe even the same old, same old stuff. But this genealogy is not just any genealogy. It is the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. This genealogy tells us who Jesus is, and it explains why Jesus came to do what he did. But even more, as we learn about the identity of Jesus and about his person and work, we also learn about ourselves. His life and who he is is meant to intersect with our lives in a powerful and meaningful way. Jesus' genealogy is meant to be our genealogy. We will only rightly understand who we are and why we are here if we know who he is and why he came into this dark and dying world. Matthew begins with these words, the book of the genealogy. In the Greek text, this phrase is the same Greek title used for the book of Genesis. What is Genesis? It is the book of the genealogy, the genealogy of all mankind. Here, these words, the book of genealogy, the book of the genealogy, is a phrase that's used both in Genesis 2-4, where it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the same phrase that's used in Genesis 5-1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. It could also be translated, the book of the beginning. Or, the book of origins. Why does Matthew take the title of the first book of the Bible and begin his book with that same title? Why does he appropriate that title and put it here at the very beginning of what he writes? It's not by accident. It's purposeful. He is communicating something. He is saying, I am about to give you the account of the beginning Just like Genesis told you about creation, I am going to tell you about the new creation, but even better, I am going to tell you about the author of the new creation, Jesus Christ. People are interested in the origins of life. How did life begin? Where did mankind come from? Matthew draws us in and says, I am about to tell you about the origin of life And the origin is in a person. It is the Messiah. It is Jesus. If you are looking for life, you have to look no further than Jesus Christ. In him is life, and the life is the light of men. All of the focus at the beginning of Matthew, is placed upon the supremacy of Christ and the identity of Christ. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And more than just introducing the genealogy, I believe Matthew is setting up the whole trajectory of his 
book with this first verse. Who Jesus is, his identity, will be unfolded throughout the entirety of the gospel according to Matthew. And from the beginning, we are told there is no life apart from Jesus Christ. That is where so many go wrong, isn't it? People want life. They desire life. But they think they can find life without Jesus. This is not merely a great truth. It is the philosophy for why we live our lives the way that we live our lives. Do you live your life like there is no life apart from Jesus? Do you say, I have died with Christ and my life is hidden with Christ in God? Or do we think that we must somehow generate our own life, that somehow we must keep it going, that we have enough of something in us to sustain and preserve ourselves. It is only when we come to the end of ourselves, it is only when we realize that we have nothing that is able to perpetuate our lives and sustain our lives in any way that is meaningful, it is only when we lose our life that we gain the life of Christ. The beginning of Jesus' genealogy begins with an emphasis on Abraham. He is the first patriarch. He is the head, the fount, the beginning of the nation of Israel. God had made a covenant with Abraham. If Jesus is the true Israel, if he is the true Messiah, he would have to be the son of Abraham. And we see that as Matthew focuses here on these six verses on Abraham, that there are transformations that take place within this emphasis. So what are these transformations? Three transformations. You can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful. Three transformations. Number one, the genealogy of Jesus, in the genealogy of Jesus, the fruitless become fruitful. The fruitless become fruitful. I saw my neighbor out in front of his house one day, not too long ago, I think it was this fall, he had recently planted some fruit trees in his front yard, and I asked him how long it would take until he had fruit. He was hopeful that in a year or two, he would see pears on those freshly planted pear trees. It takes time to grow fruit on trees. I didn't know how long until I Googled it. Some trees, two to three years. Some trees, five to seven years. Some trees, all the way up to 15 years before you would see them produce any fruit. That says to me that if you're going to plant fruit trees, you better be patient. The line of Abraham was no different. It was not an explosion of descendants. It was not a baby boom. It was slow and long and painstaking. Remember in Genesis 17, 6, 
when the Lord promised Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. If Abraham were to look around, if he were to judge by only what his eyes could see, that promise of God appeared to be an impossibility. He was old. His wife, Sarah, was old, well past childbearing years. Not only was Sarah old, she was barren. Her womb was closed. It was dead. It was lifeless. How could Abraham, whose name means father of a multitude of nations, be a father of a multitude if he didn't have any children? And even when the Lord promised a child to Abraham, Sarah, who was eavesdropping on the conversation, laughed to herself at the thought of such an impossible idea. There's no way that that could ever happen. But the Lord opened Sarah's barren womb and brought forth the life of Isaac, whose name means he laughs. Isaac was the only child of Abraham. We are off to a snail's pace. Isaac grows up, marries a woman named Rebekah. And lo and behold, what do we know about Rebekah? Genesis 25, 21, she also was barren. However, Isaac prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah conceived with twins, and to her are born Jacob and Esau. Again, out of a barren womb, God brought forth life. Jacob is the next descendant in line. Jacob ends up with two wives, Leah and Rachel. Leah proves to be fruitful right from the beginning. God opens her womb. But do you remember why God opens the womb of Leah? Because she is hated by her husband. Rachel, the wife whom Jacob loved, was barren. The despised and hated one proves fruitful. Fruitfulness is dependent upon God and determined by God and defined by God. Now we get to one of Jacob's 12 sons, his fourthborn son, exactly. His name was Judah. Judah bears the twins of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Here is something unusual in a genealogy. This is not just the names of the fathers, but there are also included names of some of the wives, some of the women. And so here is the first one, Tamar. And do you remember Tamar's story? Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah took a Canaanite woman to be his wife, bore these three sons. Ur was given to this woman, Tamar. But Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. There's something interesting in the nation of Israel. There was something known as leveret marriage. 
Leveret marriage was when you would have a husband who was married to his wife. The husband would die and did not have any offspring. It was the next son's obligation and responsibility to bring forth a child with his brother's wife so that offspring, it says, would be raised up for his brother. Well, Onan was wicked in the sight of the Lord as well. He shirked his responsibility to provide a son for Judah or for Ur and Tamar. And he was also put to death. And so Judah said, wait for my last son. Wait for Shelah. When he gets old enough, I will give him to you, Tamar, to be your husband so that he might raise up offspring. But Shelah became of age. Judah did not give him to Tamar as her husband. So Tamar had to take matters into her own hands. She disguised herself as a prostitute waiting for her father-in-law who then had relations with her. And when Judah had heard that Tamar was with child, Judah did not know what had happened. He did not know who this woman was when he had relations with her. But then later he heard that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, was with child. He thought she had been immoral. But when it was revealed that he was the father, he said of Tamar, she is more righteous than I. It was not ideal. It was not the way it was supposed to be. But even in this immoral and sinful act, the Lord used it to raise up offspring, offspring that would be in the line of the Messiah. Offspring out of dead wombs, offspring raised up through an incestuous relationship. However, it happened, it was that the fruitless became fruitful. What looked hopeless was made to be hopeful. What looked like a dead end, God made a way. And the fruitless becoming fruitful is about resurrection. God raised up offspring out of barren wombs. God raised up offspring from Judah and Tamar. And then look at what it says in Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verses 9 and 10. You can turn over a few pages in your Bible. I'll start Matthew 3, verse 7. This is about John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our fathers, for I tell you, Listen carefully. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God makes the fruitless fruitful. God can raise up offspring from something that is dead and lifeless, from a stone. He's already done it. And now John the Baptist is saying to these Pharisees and these Sadducees, don't you claim to be in Abraham's life. Don't you claim to be part of his descendants. 
Because this is what God is about. This is God about resurrecting people, bringing life from the dead, bringing up life even from stones. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And then look at Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 23 and following. The same day, Sadducees came to him, that's to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is uh, leveret marriage. Verse 25, Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection to begin with, thought, we've trapped Jesus with this question. But look at what Jesus says. But when Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Why did Jesus bring them back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Because these were the people where you saw the resurrection take place. Because this is where God was bringing life out of dead, barren, lifeless wombs. The evidence of the resurrection starts with Abraham and his offspring. That is where resurrection began. Jesus brought them back to the beginning and said, you want to know about the resurrection? Look to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That is God making fruitful the fruitless. That is God bringing back to life from the dead. That is God giving hope to the hopeless. And that's the resurrection now that we as Christians share in because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. What is the book of Matthew about? From beginning to end, it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is in his resurrection that we are raised. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above and not the things of the earth. And have a hope hope for a future, a future resurrection, when everyone who has died in Christ will be raised to glory. Number two, in the genealogy of Jesus, the foreigners become the faithful. In the genealogy of Jesus, the foreigners become the faithful. There are those people or events in our family tree that we would rather not talk about. We would prefer to gloss over them, ignore them. They are the black spot or the black sheep of the family. We don't talk about Bruno. No, no, no. 
We've just seen Judah and Tamar, which Matthew doesn't hide. Matthew doesn't sugarcoat the genealogy of Christ. The difficulties, the black sheep, or the stains are used by God to display more of his glory and grace through Jesus Christ. We now come to two foreigners, two more women, Rahab and Ruth. Rahab was the prostitute in Jericho who hid the two Israelite spies when they came to spy out the land. She and her family were preserved out of all of the inhabitants of Jericho because of her faithfulness. She is now even rewarded with a prominent place in the genealogy of Christ. Then we are told about another woman, Ruth. When you read about the account of Ruth in the book of Ruth, there you will find that she is often called Ruth the Moabite. Everywhere you read about her name, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, again and again, over and over, so as to not let the reader forget who this person is. This is Ruth the Moabite. And that is not a kind word to say about this woman. Because do you remember the origin of the Moabite people? They began when Lot and his daughter had an incestuous relationship. In fact, Moab means from the father, from my father. They, along with the Ammonites, were sworn enemies of the people of Israel. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 6, they are forbidden from entering the assembly of the Lord. These are people that you are not going to let in. Do not let in the Moabites. Do not let in the Ammonites. They are our enemies. They are against us. But here is Ruth, whose Israelite husband has died. She binds herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and returns from the land of Moab to Bethlehem. There she is faithful, and she finds a husband named Boaz. She is welcomed into the assembly. She bears a child in the line of Christ. The foreigners, the nations, those who were on the outside of Israel have now become the faithful. The nations have been brought into the people of God. Those who were once far off have now been brought near. Those who were once enemies are now family. Maybe you would think of yourself this morning as the black sheep of the family. The one who is to be forgotten or not mentioned. Look at Romans 5 with me for a moment. Romans 5. Verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you hear it there? 
For if while we were enemies, for if while we were on the outside, for if while we were the black sheep, the ones to be forgotten, the ones to never be mentioned. But what? Through the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we were reconciled to God. We were given a relationship with God. We were made to be at peace with God. You are not too far gone. God's mercy and grace are greater than all your sin. Believing in Christ, you are no longer far off, but you have been brought near. You, are, you have been given everything that you need for life and for godliness. And now you can be counted as the faithful, as a part of God's family. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That is the black sheep being made clean. That is the black sheep being purchased by the perfect Lamb of God. That is the foreigners being made to be the faithful. You are not too far gone. And neither is anyone that you know. Finally, number three. The genealogy, in the genealogy of Jesus, the forms find their fulfillment. The forms find their fulfillment. There are certain forms that we see here in this genealogy of Christ that point us to Christ, to, that point us to who He is. Many of the people in these first few verses are types of Christ who is to come. And what happened in the lives of some of these people help us understand the life of Christ and see Him as the fulfillment, the culmination of God completing His redemptive plan. So, for example, Jesus is the true and better Isaac. Who was Isaac? He was the only beloved son of Abraham. Who was taken up on Mount Moriah, who bore the wood for the altar on his own back who there was laid on the altar by his father and he went on the altar willingly he was the son to be offered as a sacrifice but the Lord intervened at the last moment and provided a ram that had been caught in the thicket as a substitute now Jesus Christ is the son who bore wood on his own back, who went up another hill, the hill of Calvary. But when, when the death blow was to be struck, there was no one to stop it. It came down upon Christ, the willing sacrifice. God did not spare his own son for you. How will he not also graciously give us 
all things. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, the chosen one of God who is the true Israel. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the true and better Boaz. Boaz was this kinsman redeemer. He was to purchase back or buy back to continue on the name of these descendants of Israel, of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and her two sons. He was the one who was to keep that line going. And we have a better Redeemer in Jesus Christ, the righteous. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That's the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. He is the better Redeemer than Boaz because He's purchased us with His own blood. And finally, Jesus is the final and true Son of Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham. He is the one in whom the promise that was made to Abraham find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so now all who belong to Jesus are united to him and belong to him and also are made Abraham's offspring as well. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, According to promise. We are part of an inheritance. Because of Christ. An inheritance that is safe and guarded. Protected in heaven. An inheritance that will never be defiled. That will never fade away. An inheritance. That will be found in the presence of the living God. Forever and forever and forever. And as I read these verses. I'm struck by the fact That God is taking what is empty and he is filling it up. Whether it is the fruitless, whether it is the foreigners, or whether it is the forms, God is filling up the empty. And maybe there is no more poignant message that we need to hear in these days and during this time. People are empty. Their hearts are are vacuous and they know something it needs to be filled and maybe that's why at the end of the year people still need to fill their lives up with a bunch of stuff what has caused you the greatest anxiety and discomfort and stress this week. Have you been anxious because 
you are looking for something to fill you up that would never satisfy. You are looking to be filled with things. The Old Testament often talks about idols being worthless. But that word worthless could also be translated empty. That's what idols are. They are empty. They give you nothing. They provide nothing. They have nothing. They can never and will never fill you up. What does God do? He fills us up. Finally, fully, and completely with his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 says this. And he put all things under his feet. So that's God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, with, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God, through Jesus Christ, makes us, the body of Christ, full. He fills us all in all. He fills us completely. He fills us to the brim. He fills us so that nothing is lacking. We are those who were empty, who needed to be filled, and God has filled us through his son, Jesus Christ. And what has he filled us with? He's filled us with Christ, yes, but let's think of it this way. He's filled us with his own glory. And what does this glory do in your life? Does it make any difference? It makes you live life differently. It makes you think about what's important differently. Suddenly all the things that you thought could fill up your heart and fill up your life don't mean as much. The one who truly matters means everything. And do you remember what God promised to Abraham? He said to him, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We know that blessing to come through Jesus Christ and through the spreading of his gospel and his glory in the earth. But when you get to the very book of the end of Matthew, the last few verses... Listen to what it says. This is Matthew 28, 18, following. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, look at what it says, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of 
of the age. God had promised Abraham to bless all the families of the earth through his offspring. He has done that in Jesus Christ. And then he's filled us with his fullness and with his glory so that what? Now we go out to all the nations so that God's glory might continue to be spread so that he might be magnified and glorified even more and so that a hope of eternal security in heaven with God would be known by more and more and more. God takes what is empty and fills it up, and that becomes the motivating engine for our mission. What does it say if we, for some reason, lose sight of the mission. Fill us, O oh Lord, the one who fills all in all. Fill us again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is precious and holy. It is right and true. It is clean and enduring. It is always faithful and piercing. Let us receive today with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Father, and if there's someone here today who doesn't know Christ, may they see this transformation take place in their life from the fruitless to the fruitful, from the foreigner to the faithful, as they see the culmination, the fulfillment of all of your promises take place in your beloved son, Jesus Christ. And let us be filled with your glory, O Lord. And forgive us for when we believe that we need other things to fill us, other things to satisfy us, other things to take your place. Only you can fill the vacuum. Only you can fill the void. Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will make us content. And Lord, maybe it's time that we are anxious for being filled with your glory rather than being anxious about all of the stuff out there in the world. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.